Amen to that. Isn't it great to be in love with Jesus? That's why we're here, because we love our Lord and because he loves us. And that's a wonderful way to start our time together this morning. I've asked a number of people to help me get started, so could my helpers come forward? And instead of meeting here in the front of the stage, if you can come up these stairs and we'll stand up here so everybody can see us a little bit better. Thank you guys very much for taking the time and the effort to make it all the way up here. Let's go right up to the top, that way everybody might see better. Look at this. Yeah, now I want you to dance for everybody. I didn't tell you what you were going to do. So, uh, here you go. It's funny Karen said about Vanna White, because that's what you lovely ladies all are today. The boys, not so much. I don't know what we're going to do with you guys. Oh, you know what? We don't even have one for you. You're just there. You're off. Why, thank you. Oh, man, I'm sorry. He did not make the cut. Well, in front of us, we see the word salvation. And when we see that word, we have to wonder how some people feel that they can obtain salvation. And there's many different thoughts. Most people do consider that if there's something after life and death, that they need, we need to think, is there a heaven or, there hell, a heaven or hell? And if there is, what would salvation look like? And what do people turn to? Can you turn your card around? Some people believe it's the use of money. Maybe if I used the money that I earned for good, for charitable things, if I help people who don't have homes have homes, or I help people who need food in Africa, if I do that, maybe being good that way will earn me salvation. And we know that doesn't work. Scripture says that's not true. Brittany, can you turn your card? Some people say, well, you know what, I have a Bible. Actually, I might have many Bibles, and I spend time reading my Bible. I, I try to obey it. I have devotions in it. And as good as that is, as important that is for a person's life, that in itself does not save anyone reading the Bible or knowing it. Can you turn your card over? Oh, there's a picture of a a church, a church with a steeple. Well, many people, they say, well, I take Sunday mornings. I could be doing so many different things right now. I could be sleeping, I could be going for a walk, I could just be enjoying the summer. But I go to church and I even do other things during the week. But it's not participating in church that brings salvation either. Can you turn your card? And some people say, well, what about prayer? I believe in God, and when I need help, I pray. I I give things to Him. And, And as important as that is to pray and to know that there's a God who listens, prayer in itself doesn't bring salvation. So as I take your cards, you guys can head back down. And the rest of you, can you turn your cards around, uh, turn them around and make sure the letter's upright and move together. (laughs) Vanna's very pretty. (laughs) And so now we've got Jesus. And this we know for sure is the only way to obtain salvation is through the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why we're here as a church. We celebrate the work that Christ did for us so that we could enter into a relationship with God. But it wasn't a simple thing. Jesus had to do something for our sins to be taken care of. Romans 3.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Can you guys turn your cards again one more time? Jesus was slain for us. He faced 
hardship. He faced sorrows. Scripture, we, we talk of God, talk of Jesus as the man of sorrows. And we don't say that lightly. He faced so many different fears and sorrows in order for our sins to be taken care of. And we're so thankful that he did that for us. And, and this L, this L reminds us that he did it out of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we still have something that we need to do. Thank you. We need to take it and we need to accept what Christ has done. It's not just that he died on the cross and rose again. It's just that we personally need to say, Lord, I admit that I can do nothing for my salvation apart for what you have done for me. And I gladly accept what you did for me. And I gladly surrender to you for the rest of my life. I no longer live. Lord, you live in me. That is the hope we have. That's the commitment we have as Christians. But there's still something that we deal with this side of heaven. And, and there's still sin. Christ died for our sin. And we're forgiven of that sin. But as a believer, I still struggle with sin daily. Until the day I see Christ face to face, I will this side of heaven. But I have a choice to make. And if you look right in the middle of sin, what's the letter you see? It's I. This is a very small word that gets me into a lot of trouble. Because sometimes I forget that life isn't about me, and I say, Lord, I want this, and I don't give up on what I want. Today, as we learn about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, we learn that he had legitimate and deep desires too. But that when he faced temptation, he took his eye, and he submitted it to his Father. And he said, not what I will but what you will. And if as Christians, if we're going to live a victorious life, that's what we need to continually do. We've made a decision to have Christ as our Lord, but every day, every temptation, I say, Lord, take my eye. I submit it to you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Let's give all these guys a wonderful hand for helping us out. Thank you, Ria. Today we're going to be reading the scripture passage in Mark. I'd ask you to open up your Bibles. Mark 14. And we're going to be starting actually at verse 26. And we're going to read till 42. Just uh, putting this passage into the context of what we heard last week. Last week Mark was here and he shared with us about how uh, Jesus had his disciples find a, a room, an upper room, where they were celebrating Passover. And Passover was a time where they remembered the escape from Egypt through Exodus and what the, the Israelites needed to do by putting the blood of a lamb over the door to say that these are protected people by God. A lamb had to die in order for them to be safe. And over the Passover meal, the Lord showed that he was actually going to be taking the place of that Passover lamb, what we now know as the Lord's Supper. He was going to give up his body and his blood and what a lamb could only do symbolically, he was going to do permanently. And our sins would be cared for because of his sacrifice. So please stand with me right now as we read today's passage. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. 
You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground, and he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples, and he found them sleeping. Simon, he said, Peter, to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. And please be seated. Well, the first words in this passage are not easy ones to hear. You will all fall away. And with these words, Mark starts the theme of abandonment in the life of Christ that continues all the way to him being on the cross. And how does Christ know that they're going to fall away? Well, it's because he believes in the Old Testament scriptures. He believes that prophecy is real. What God has spoken in the past will come to happen in his timing and in his way. And he shares a piece of prophecy with his disciples. I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Only Matthew and Mark mention this conversation with Jesus and his disciples on the way to the Mount of Olives. This quote is from Zechariah 3, verse 17, and it's important that we understand the context of this prophecy as far as why would Jesus share it at that point. Uh, Zechariah is part of the Old Testament. It's the second last book. So if you wanted to find it, go to Matthew and then go two books back, and that's where you'd find Zechariah. And the last three chapters deal with Israel's future and the spiritual deliverance from sin. Chapter 13 specifically deals with cleansing from sin. The verse 1 talks about, on that day there will be a fountain that will open, and that fountain will cleanse people from their sins and their impurity. Zechariah 13, verse 7, which is part of what Jesus quoted, says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hands against the little ones. The rest of that chapter goes on to say that people are going to be scattered throughout the world, and at one point the Lord is going to take two-thirds of them, and they will be destroyed, and the other third is going to be refined by fire, and those are going to be the people who are his chosen people, that called my people. 
chapter 14 then says that there's going to be a day when the Lord goes to the Mount of Olives, puts his feet on there, and there is going to be a split from the east to the west, making two separate mountains, one on the north and one on the south. And at that location, the Lord will return, and his angels will be following him. So now this is the very mountain that Jesus is walking to with his disciples when he shares this quote. And he also makes it known that he is the shepherd that the prophecy refers to. He fully understood his ID. He knew who he was in God. And he, he was perfectly and completely aware of the mission that was in front of him. And Jesus knew that the only I that has authority in this world is God. It's the one who said, I will strike the shepherd. That I, that has authority. No one else does. What God says will come to pass. Christ knew the faith that was before him. He knew that he was going to be a slaughtered lamb. And today, we find out too that he knew that he was going to be the shepherd who was struck. And that meant that he was going to be facing a very violent death by his father. Without Christ's following statement, this quote would appear very hopeless and, and defeating. But thankfully, we have verse 28. And Jesus says to his disciples, But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Every year we celebrate Easter, and the really significant part of Easter is that together we intentionally celebrate that he has risen. That is the hope of our salvation. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then our faith is worth nothing. That's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied above all men. So praise the Lord that we know the truth that Christ rose from the dead. And he told his disciples that this was going to happen. He also told them that after I've risen, I am going to lead you to Galilee. That phrase is a picture of a shepherd leading his sheep. A shepherd who would gather the sheep that were scattered and bring them to the location that he desired. Those of us who know John 10 verse 27 are familiar with the words, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. That is what God has in store for us. For those who submit their lives to Christ, he says, Listen to my voice and I will follow you. And that's the hope that he gave his disciples after he told them that he was going to be struck. But unfortunately, Peter doesn't listen to the whole message. He doesn't hear what Jesus says about hope. He doesn't hear what Jesus says about there being a future restoration. Rather, he only hears failure. And so he boasts in his intention to be faithful to Christ. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. In other words, when Peter says, sorry, so when Jesus hears that, he says, Peter, you, you don't understand. This is going to happen. And Peter, tonight, even before the rooster crows twice, you are going to deny me. Peter doesn't like hearing those words. He doesn't like hearing Jesus tell him that his self-proclaimed faithfulness doesn't mean anything, that he can't follow through. In other words, when Peter says, I will not, the I carries no authority, it carries no power over what God has ordained. Peter doesn't have the ability to keep his word 
when it's contrary to what God has said is going to happen. But Peter is stubborn, and he insists emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Can you hear the audacity in Peter's statement? Jesus, I I know that you believe the Old Testament. I know you believe this is going to happen. But remember me? I'm Peter. I'm the rock. I'm the one you're going to build your church upon. No, 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 no. I'm not going to fail you, Lord. You know, we can't say what his motives or his intentions were. But I do believe that in the depths of Peter's heart, he was sincere. Mark gives us no indication that Peter wasn't sincere in what he was saying that he really meant to be obedient to Christ, to stay with him, not to fall away, not to scatter. But Peter was self-deceived in his own ability to predict his future actions. At this point, before the resurrection, before the day of Pentecost, Peter didn't understand who Christ was, much less who he was. And along with Peter, we have to recognize that we have no authority to make claims about our future intended faithfulness to Christ. We have no grounds to boast in the things that we plan to do to demonstrate our faithfulness to God in our own strength. But what we are able to boast in is our weakness. Paul says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. I don't know about you, but I'm quite aware of many of my weaknesses. And if I can boast in that to show God's strength, I definitely would want to do that. I definitely want to do that. I know that by myself I'm anxious. With Christ I have peace. I know that on my own I would look for superficial pleasure continually. And with God I'm learning more about meaningful joy. I know that I would be looking for acceptance in in very unhealthy ways. And with Christ, I have healthy belonging with him and his church. What are some of the weaknesses that you could boast in that would glorify the power of God? Because that's the only thing we can really boast in. The next portion we'll talk about is the sorrow of a fully surrendered eye. Mark makes no mention of Peter making a counter-argument or of Jesus making a counter-argument to Peter's statement. He just goes on to say that they're heading to Gethsemane. Uh, Gethsemane means oil press, and from what we know, this would be a small garden of olive trees that was on the west side of the Mount of Olives, and it would have been facing Jerusalem. It's a common place, John tells us, that uh, Jesus and his disciples went to meet. When they get there, Jesus leaves eight of his disciples at the entrance to Gethsemane. He then takes Peter, James, and John with him farther into the garden. We don't know why he chose those three specifically. Mark doesn't say. But we do know that in the past, Jesus has already had special moments with these men. He took only these people to the raising of of Jairus' daughter. And they were the ones who witnesses his transformation with Elijah and Moses. And now Jesus wants them to witness his agony. I find it interesting that Jesus having been rebuked by Peter, as we saw in chapter 8, having James and John having a very self-centered request about their leadership role in his kingdom, that Jesus still wanted these three men to be his inner circle, to be his close friends. Jesus was very loving and forgiving in his friendships. 
Mark tells us that Jesus, that Christ began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Of all the Gospels, Mark is the one who says this was a dark, emotional, and despairing time. There was nothing pretty about the time in Gethsemane. It was a time of horror for Jesus. The NIV uses the word troubled. A better word actually is horrified or terrified. When Christ was in this garden, he was scared. He didn't want what was coming in front of him. Mark holds no punches in displaying the full humanity of Christ and his willingness to share his sorrow with the men who accompanied him. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Imagine having the creator of the universe self-disclosing so openly with you. Jesus knew that they would desert him, and still he makes himself vulnerable to them. If only we could be so trusting with the people that we love and not always hide ourselves or risk self-disclosure, or not risk self-disclosure. In the next verse, we see Jesus falling to the ground and crying out to God in prayer for help. And this is not a picture of the Messiah that the people would have expected or that we would expect. For us, when we hear stories of heroic people, men and women of old who have stood up for Christ and faced death, you might think of a book like this, the book, uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, full of stories of people who, against what the world would say all odds, would face horrifying death and not renounce the name of Christ, but be bold, be brave, whether they were burned at the stake or cut in two or eaten by animals, but they bravely faced death. And they didn't hold back from saying that they trusted and relied on Christ. This is the type of people, when we hear those stories, that we think of as heroic or as people who are, are leaders, right? People that we could follow. Not so much someone who's lying on the ground and crying out for help. That picture doesn't resonate with us as well. But what we need to understand is that we have vastly different scenarios here. All the people that you hear about in stories who stand up for Christ or all the people you read about in a book like this, when they stand up for their faith, when they become martyrs for Christ, they actually grow in their intimacy with God and they actually get empowered by the Holy Spirit. But Christ's face was completely different. By being obedient to God, the Holy Spirit would leave him. And he would be abandoned and separated from God. They're completely different. And so what we see here is a man who's braver than we could ever imagine. And who faced this because he knew it pleased the Father. And he knew it was needed to be done for us. Christ knew that by, obe by being obedient to God in this situation, he was actually going to become what God hates. That's why he's a man of sorrows. Mark also shows us that he's a man of prayer. Jesus practiced what he preached. When he was in a time when he was facing temptation, he prayed. He gave everything to God. And from Mark, we learn at least four things about prayer from Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We learn that he had an intimacy with God. He called him Abba, which simply means daddy, a very affectionate term. We know that Jesus and we can have confidence in an omnipotent God, one for whom everything is possible. 
we know that it's good for us to be both emotional and genuine with God. Lord, please take this cup from me, is what Jesus said. And finally, we know that in prayer, we need to be obedient to the will of God. The word yet is very important. This is what I want, Lord, and it's good for you to know that. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. But submission, being obedient to God, does not exempt one from facing sorrow. It doesn't just mean happy bliss from that point on. And Mark shows Jesus as a man of sorrows. And we should never diminish what Christ faced. Just think, well, he was God. Of course he could face it. What he faced emotionally is unfathomable for us. We cannot comprehend the despair that he felt. And when the Bible says that God can comfort us because he is the source of all comfort, that he's experienced everything we have to a greater degree, it's true. We can't even begin to know the grief that he experienced. For our benefit, Jesus, being the man of sorrows, faced being betrayed by Judas, deserted by his closest friends, condemned by the crowd and religious leaders, treated with extreme verbal and physical abuse by Roman guards, sentenced as a criminal to die an excruciating death on the cross, and most of all, he was given the cup to take in the last hour. And the cup is that metaphor for the wrath of God. For him, all those other things. Can you imagine? There's a whole list of things here that any of us would crumble under. And Jesus looked at all those things and he said, the worst thing is that I am going to be separated. I am going to be abandoned from my Father. And yet he willingly did that for us and to be obedient to God. The question might come up, how is it possible that a loving God could be so wrathful? How does that work together? Uh, I was reading a book this uh, last week uh, by Tim Keller. Uh, it's called King's Cross. I've put a quote on the note page there for you. I'm going to read it for you, and then we're going to delve into it a little bit. It just says, Your conception of God's love and your value in his sight will only be as big as your understanding of his wrath. Your conception of God's love and your value in his sight will only be as big as your understanding of his wrath. Maybe you're going to scratch your head a little. What does that look like? What does that exactly mean? Well, here's an example for you. Loving people can get angry not in spite of their love, but because of it. Imagine you're home and you're watching the evening news. And as you're watching the news, you hear a story about a woman getting mugged downtown. Your thoughts probably go, oh man, that's too bad. I can't believe that happens again in our city. What's happening here? Hopefully there's some thought for that woman, but probably not a lot of emotion. And as the next story comes on, all of a sudden your cell phone rings, and it's a police officer, and they tell you that the woman who was mugged was your wife or your daughter or your best friend. What's going to happen to your emotions then? Are you going to get enraged that something like that could happen to someone? When we love people, we want to see them protected. We don't want to see harm coming to them. And when God looks at us, and he sees sin, and he knows that sin is going to take us away from him, that sin is going to destroy us, he gets angry. That sin has to be paid for. That sin has to be dealt with. It's not going to last forever. 
He wants us to be in eternity with him forever in a perfect love relationship. So that sin has to be dealt with. And yes, he's angry. And because Jesus said, I will become that sin, he took that full wrath of God that only demonstrates his love for us. And Jesus took the penalty for everything that we deserve. Praise God for a loving God who's angry with sin. And praise God that he provided a way that I and you don't have to pay for our sins. That we can surrender to God and live our lives for him in his strength and his ability. So what keeps you from saying, may your will be done in the midst of your trials? Are there some things you think maybe, no God, my idea here is better than yours. I want what I want. Let me remind you that your desires don't have to be sinful, but if they're still different than what God wants, that constitutes sin. And sin has to be dealt with. Sin, we have to say, I don't want a part of that because that only leads to death. So let's move on to the final section, and it's just called, Why My Eye is Unreliable. Unlike Matthew, Mark reports the contents of Jesus' prayer only once but he, re- he notes the response of Jesus to the disciples sleeping each time. By that we can tell that Mark's main emphasis actually wasn't about what Jesus prayed in the garden. It was more about his interaction with his disciples. That's what Mark wants us to really think about. Verse 37 says, Then Jesus returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, Are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? The first thing to note is that Jesus specifically addresses Simon. Simon, who we we know as Peter. And he says, Simon, you know, you just declared your faithfulness to me. I just asked you to keep awake and you can't even do that. Simon, do you remember who you are without me? With me, you are Peter, the rock that the church will be built on. Without me, you are just Simon. And that little word, I'm sure, hit Peter a little bit. But not enough that he wouldn't fall asleep again. Verse 38 says, Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. This is the whole reason why my eye is unreliable. I want to do good things. I want to honor God, but my body is weak. While I desire to follow Jesus, my flesh distracts me. Instead of having one focus just on God, my body leads me into different ways. A very common example for us would probably be saying, hey, summer's coming, I'd like to lose a few pounds, so I have a goal and I work hard at it. Maybe I'll even go for a run. And then when I get back from the run, my body says, wow, you deserve a treat. And so what do you do? You go and you make some ice cream and maybe you have a cookie and you end up having more calories than you burned off. Or one day you just say, oh, I'm going to wake up early every day and I'm going to jog. But then your alarm goes off and you say, oh, where's the snooze button? Oh, so can't wait for summer so I can be outside and exercise. You go to the door, it's plus 30 outside. You say, oh, it's way too hot. I'm going to lie on the sofa and just watch TV. My willingness is there and it's genuine and it's sincere, but my body leads me in a different direction. And that's the tension that we face this side of heaven. 
It's not that our body is evil. Some of its desires are legit and needing. I do need to eat sometimes. I do need to rest sometimes. But I don't need it every time my body tells me I need it. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Please understand that the weakness of our flesh is never an excuse for our misbehavior. Rather, what Jesus said there was a call to be vigilant in our lives and to surrender to God in prayer. In the context